It's Wednesday, so you've got me. I'm Carousel Baird. Hey, you can listen to me any day of the week. You can listen online at WRTFM.org, at the A Public Affair podcast, or on the WORT smartphone app. If you like what you hear, click the donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab my mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. We bring the truth to places. Hello, everybody, and welcome to A Public Affair. It's Wednesday, August 24th. I forgot what day it was for a second. It is. It is Wednesday, August 24th. That means you've got me. I'm Carousel Baird. And I want to remind you, you are listening to volunteer-powered, listener-sponsored community radio, WORT 89.9 FM Madison. Uh... It's a fabulous show today, an important conversation. It is back to school time, August. We're all getting ready to send our children back into uh, the school, the schoolroom, the school education, handing them off to our amazing, amazing teachers, hopefully our amazing public school teachers. My kids have been going into public school here in Madison. My husband and I both are public school uh, grads and... um, there's a teacher shortage, unfortunately. When we talk about back to school and we talk about all these struggles that our schools are facing, what we really sometimes forget to talk about is what it's like to be a teacher in our public schools. And in fact, there are tens of thousands of openings across the nation. There is no really clear data on what's happening, but Everywhere, in every state that you read about online, you can see the teacher shortages. Rural school districts in Texas are switching to four-day weeks due to lack of staff and hope to entice people. Florida has asked veterans with no teaching experience at all to apply to be teachers. Arizona has allowed college students that are studying. They don't even have to be studying to be a teacher. Just studying in your ambitious college way Why don't you come in and be a teacher? Really uh, watering down, degrading the quality teachers that we've come to know and expect and appreciate in public schools. Why is that happening? Why is there a huge teacher shortage? I bet you have a lot of ideas about why in your head right now, but we're going to have a deeper conversation about that today. We have... uh, Kim Kohlhaas, she's joining us today. Hello, Kim. She is uh, the AFT Wisconsin president. And before she became president of AFT Wisconsin, she was an educator in Superior for 17 years. Hello, Kim. Hi. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, I want to sort of start with, as I was preparing for the show, there are so many articles and, and stories really ramping up this past uh, six months, really, all saying the same thing. We are in a crisis. There is a teacher shortage. And one of the things that uh, I found most striking was a Gallup poll that came out this summer. And the Gallup poll found that K-12 workers are more burnt out than any other workers in America. And 44% of K-12 employees said they feel always or very often burned out and that number was highest of every of any other industry of medical worker not that it's a competition but higher than medical workers higher than government workers higher than election officials higher than every other industry were k to 12 employees and this was teachers and also uh administrative staffs that work in k through 12 so kim what is going on why is it so bad when we talk about the teacher shortage, I want to be very clear that this is a created problem. Uh, this is not something that just all of a sudden showed up. It's been going on for about 20 years because we haven't invested in our public schools. We have not invested in the value and the respect and the core aspects of what teaching um, does for our communities. And we've seen this teacher shortage growing over the past 20 years. There's been Um, lots of research and a lot of people that have been saying that this is becoming a a significant problem. And it's in the last two years during the pandemic when we saw exactly how essential our public school systems are for providing um, not just the learning environment, but providing uh, the mental health for students, providing services for students, providing nutrition for students. 
And so we've got a system that has really been struggling for quite a long time by design. And um, this year we finally have had a, um, a large enough number of teachers say, I can no longer do this for my own well-being. That is, just, it is becoming headline news. Uh, last year, we had classrooms that were not filled. We had counselor positions that were not filled. Over the past five, six, seven years, we've seen this trend with it. And there's always been a, a way to solve the teacher shortage, but there's never been a way to, to actually have a conversation about what, how do we invest in public education so that we are able to have the strong system that we need to have. And we're seeing just a breaking point that, is, that has become very public for a lot of communities. And are you seeing this also amplified uh, in Wisconsin? I know the conversation that I've had in the past few weeks uh, with teachers here in Madison. I, I work in local politics and I have been connected with a lot of teachers. My kids went through the Madison public schools are still there. And just anecdotally, every teacher is telling me that this is more intense than it had ever been before in the sense of there literally aren't teachers in classrooms in the numbers that they didn't see before. They're also talking to me about how there aren't enough substitutes. So when a teacher gets overwhelmed or wants needs to take a day off, they can't. All of these things, there literally aren't enough people. Is yeah, Are absolutely. you seeing that across Wisconsin? I see that in every school district, whether it's one of our larger districts that have more teachers and more students, or if it's our rural communities. Um, there were many rural communities that did not have school counselors last year. Hmm. And when we talk about the mental health crisis of these students, and then you don't have a school counselor there to provide the support. Um, this, the substitute issue is a huge issue in our districts. And so if you are sick and are unable to come in, um, somebody's got to take those children. Yeah. And so it's either another teacher, you double up class sizes, um, you are pulling teachers every hour to cover that classroom. Um, and all of those aspects of it changes the quality of instruction for the students that day. It ends up just being a safe place for kids to be and not about learning. Let's talk about sort of piece by piece. There are so many prongs. Let's really break it down, Kim. Where where should we start? Do we want to start with the uh, the the politics that have entered the classroom how classes are now it, it seems a political forum it you know whether it's um talking about critical race theory whether it's talking about whether you should be reading certain books in your english class whether you should have lgbtq support whether you can have pride flags i know that was just i'm forgetting what community is in but i remember hearing that story just in the last few days about school boards approving things we it doesn't even matter where a teacher falls on the political line. The fact that teachers are now becoming part of a political conversation when what they're just trying to do is educate their students. Talk to me about those changes. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of information out there about um, um, indoctrinating our kids and creating um, an environment that is um, very divisive and banning books and, and critical race theory. And the reality is, is we used to have partnership with our parents because we always had the focus of the kids. Now we see a divide in our communities because it's all about this political rhetoric that is out there. It is about talking about the critical race theory, talking about um, uh, banning books, talking about not talking about LGBTQ. When it, the conversations used to be, how do we work together to make mm -hmm. sure that our schools are safe for everybody, that our schools are um, have strong programming and strong curriculums. And we used to have that partnership there. And now we've come up with this divide and we're seeing it at a lot of our school board meetings across the state where you're having uh, conversations about which books are going to be banned. Can you have a pride flag? Can you talk about pronouns? Um, you know, questioning the integrity of instruction, questioning the integrity of the teacher that's in the classroom. Correct. And really being very judgmental based on things that are are not happening. They're baseless claims about what's going on in the classrooms. And so when you're a classroom teacher who's really looking out for the best interest of every single child that's in your building, and then you see these attacks that are happening, and you see them from the parents of the students that you're working with, it becomes very difficult to maintain your mental well-being 
while still being in the classroom providing all of these supports. Well, and so much of it is teachers role teachers have so many roles but part of it is to be allies with students to be you know another adult that is there to problem solve with students to talk through things school isn't about one plus one is two now memorize that okay here's the alphabet now memorize that it's about it it's about critical thinking it's about analysis why do we do things why are we reading this book why is this important why do people disagree with it? All of that, that's the foundation of critical, successful thinking for everywhere you go in life. That happens in our schools. Yes. Well, and our schools are very diverse. We have people from all sorts of backgrounds, all sorts of abilities. And, mm-hmm. and they um, all and have every- a place in our school. Yeah. And it's, and it's a wonderful environment to interact and to learn from each other. And we're not seeing that at the moment. We're seeing a lot of attacks, a lot of um, judgmental conversations. Um, Even when parents are coming into the classrooms, they're coming in with an eye for catching you doing something wrong in the classroom. And so it becomes this environment of um, unsafe for everybody, unsafe for the instruction, unsafe for accurately teaching uh, the curriculum. Um, and unsafe for the students if they're not feeling that they are protected um, uh, and have a place to be. And that sense of belonging is really um, struggling right now. And where there's just this utter level of disrespect, um, yeah. just exactly what you're talking about. Do you feel that in Wisconsin, this is derived from the level of disrespect that began during the Act 10 conversation where all of a sudden it was the first time now, right? I'm not a public school teacher. I'm not an educator. So I may not have been paying attention uh, on the minute level, but it was the first time that I saw on a public conversation whether or not we think teachers are hard workers or if they're lazy because school ends at 3.30 in the afternoon. The first time I ever sort of heard this kind of disrespect of the work that teachers do, uh, people saying, right, they don't work in the summer, they get the summers off, what a cushy, easy job. It just sort of blew me away when the Act 10 conversation started in 2010. The level of disrespect, was that there all the time? Did Act 10 sort of amplify those conversations? What Act 10 did is it brought it to our schools um, because we have had legislation for a decade before that that was disrespecting public instruction. Uh, We had the Reagan era with no child left behind, with the constant testing, um, with expansion of voucher programs where you can leave your school if you don't like it. Mm -hmm. Um, Instead of having the conversation about how do we create a school that is inclusive, that does bring everybody in and everybody does feel welcome. So we had legislation that was making classroom instruction harder. With the constant testing, teachers were constantly judged about what they were doing. They were not doing what was best for kids, but they were doing what was mandated by the state and national government. So when Act 10 came through with the defunding and the the attacks on public education and teachers, that's when we saw it in our communities. That's when we saw our parents having conversations about, well, we aren't seeing what we want to be seeing from you. We don't like what you're doing. Um, And that was something that we had not felt before. I remember I was teaching third grade during uh, that time, and I was in the middle of doing conferences and having great conversations with parents about their goals for their students and, and the celebrations of them learning to read and do different aspects of the classroom. And then we would go out to protest and those same teacher, those same parents are driving by telling us how we're the problem with what's happening in society. Wow. And it was a really hard concept to understand how did I become the bad guy in this? Right. I, I have the same goal as for having healthy, safe learning environments for every children in our schools. How was this now my problem? And so I think it, it became personalized during Act 10. But it has evolved since then also. And we're seeing it nationwide now with the attacks talking about indoctrinating our kids, um, legislation that is coming through prohibiting students from participating in sports or talking about um, what we can and cannot teach. So it is very much by design 
at the legislative level level to not allow the profession of public educate of the profession of educating to be controlled by the people that are in the classroom doing the jobs. Well, um, we also see this with the teacher licensures. I mean, when you see that I had to go to school and get a four-year degree, I had to study brain development, learning development. I had all these aspects of of what does it mean to to be a classroom teacher. Um, and then when the st- shortage started, they wanted to start talking about, well, you don't need to have a college degree anymore, and you can get a degree online. You don't need to go in and student teach. And now we're seeing legislation that's coming through that says anybody can apply for a teaching license. Right. And so it, all of those components say to an educator, your skill, your knowledge, and your expertise as an educator is not valued because anyone can fill this job. Well, I think it's interesting that I appreciate you breaking this down because it, it really has two components to it, maybe even more. It's... Th- the literal rhetoric, the words that people are saying. But it's more than that. It's also the policies that are being implemented, and I assume across the country, uh, that that match that rhetoric, that that take autonomy and professionalism out of teaching and, and make you more of a rote, I'm teaching you these numbers, you will get this score on test, instead of a person that is teaching a child how to think. Especially with the testing era, where everything was, if it can't be tested and it can't be measured against um, the student as the student was last year, or it can't be measured against his peers, then it's not something that we should be measuring. The other aspects of learning and the other aspects of developing didn't matter, which is so critical from a teacher's point of view. Those are the aspects that matter. Yes. The testing era was really detrimental to the profession of, of teaching. Um, I remember we had to, during that testing window where you have two weeks where every child has to be tested, we had to schedule ourselves to be in the computer lab so that the students had access to taking this test. And sometimes the only time available to be in the computer lab was during the lunch hour. So you're asking a student to sit down at a computer, take a high stakes test, during their lunch hour, and all they're thinking about is, am I going to miss lunch and recess? Right. Um, Which you so- need to be successful. You need to take a break. You need to move exactly. your body. You need to get some nutritious food and health in you. Yeah. Exactly. And I remember standing there working with these children, trying to encourage them, keep going, keep going, keep going, when I knew what I was doing to them was not healthy mm-hmm. for their brains. I knew that that wasn't the case. And so that's where... As a professional, I started to see I was losing control over my pedagogy of what I knew was best practices, was best instruction, and developmentally, developmentally appropriate. I was losing control over that because of things that were happening at a state and a national level. It's interesting to see how, right, the foundation was there from, I mean, what you're talking about during the Reagan era, the 1980s, and how it's exacerbated and gotten to where we are right now. We're talking with Kim Kohas. She is uh, the president at of AFT Wisconsin. We'd love to hear your questions or comments. Please join the conversation. What do you think about the status and respect of teachers in Madison and Wisconsin and beyond? Area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. That's the right number to call. We have Nate and Rochelle in the studio. They're ready for your calls at area code 608-256-2001. All right, Kim, let's talk about... um, the mental health challenges that are facing uh, youth, particularly. We have talked about uh, on this show, but it's been a national conversation about the the three pandemics that have been happening in America, right? The racial justice pandemic, which is absolutely impacting uh, all youth when they come into our schools. The COVID pandemic, which is absolutely impacting, of course, everyone when they come into our schools, but also the mental health pandemic. And youth are now... Back in our schools, after being away during the years, year or more of COVID, and the level of social awkwardness, the level of anxiety, the level of not knowing how to interact with each other, the rise in fights and and violence that are happening. This is 
I'm shocked at people that want to point to our Madison public schools. This is a national issue where more violence, we're seeing more violence in the streets. We're seeing more violence in every public school. We're seeing that there is a uh, mental health crisis. Our schools are coming in and it's, oh, hello, teachers. You've been stressed and overwhelmed and dealing with your life during COVID. And now you have to teach to students with this additional challenge and no additional resources. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I found really frustrating is the phrase learning lost. Uh, we heard that nationwide, oh, we've got to get kids back into the school because of all the learning that is lost. No, this is an entire generation worldwide that lived through something that's going to unify them forever. Yes. But why are we making the narrative that the same benchmarks that applied a year earlier or two years earlier is the expectation when every other aspect has changed. And so mm. it wasn't learning lost, but we brought kids back to school with this community and political narrative. You're already behind. You're already insufficient. Mm. And the teachers yes. had to bring this together with less resources, with less support, um, and with th this entire structure of these higher needs than we had ever seen before. And we already worked in high needs communities. And then we had at, um, at the state levels, don't forget, this is the week to do your statewide testing. Like, you've got to be kidding me. These children are still adjusting to the social environments of it. Everything about our lives changed during COVID. But we expected the school system to be completely functional as it was before. And that's just not the reality that we brought these kids into. So I think we set them up with a narrative that they are unsuccessful. And the teachers in the classrooms had to change that narrative. Really advocated for slowing things down, regrouping, and making sure that we have this connection, the relationships, and the stability in the classroom so that we can pick up where learning was and move it forward. And that's just not what the opportunity was, was given to us. And, and did, our students suffered because of it. Did you see pressure also from parents? I mean, I know there was so much fear of, God, when my, my older kid was... Uh, in in this grade, Every, everyone with more than one kid were was comparing where their older kid was at one point, and now the younger kid who had gone through a couple years of COVID, they're like, they don't know what my older kid knew at this point, and and this level of paranoia and concern that our kids won't be educated, they won't be smart enough. How how do you how did how were teachers supposed to handle that? Well, and I think of it this way: if you have a student who had a major health issue and was out of the classroom for three months. Do you welcome them into the classroom and say, you're behind everybody else. Sit down. We're going to catch you up in the next two days. Right. You don't. No. You meet that child where they were. And educators were not given that opportunity during COVID. It was very much of this is where they were supposed to be. Get them there immediately and prove it. Well, and let's talk for a second about. The fact that teachers didn't have enough resources to deal with youth that were with mental health challenges and family challenges. I and mean, kids come to school not well fed. Um, kids come to school with all of these medical and mental health challenges, not enough time to sleep because, right, their house isn't in a, in a quiet space. They're doubled up. They're tripled up. These were all the challenges that existed before COVID and there wasn't enough funding then and there isn't any additional funding now. Yeah, our schools are really the stability for some of these students. Um, and for the majority of the students, that stability is so necessary throughout their lives. I remember being a classroom teacher, and on Fridays, I had several students who were unsure what their weekend was going to be like. Mm -hmm. They loved their Monday through Friday routine because they knew what they could expect out of their world. But on the weekends, they didn't know what that was. And in the summertime, you could see that anxiety build for those students even more because then they were going to have multiple weeks where they were unsure about their world. So during COVID, we had students that were not only dealing with that, but their households were dealing with things very differently than we'd seen before, whether the families were working more or not working at all. 
if they were laid off and had no income coming in, um, how the families dealt with their mental well-being, how the families dealt with students and daycare and um, all aspects of life, in addition to the fact that they may have family members who are really sick because of all of this. So the stress level and the anxiety of every individual during COVID was really difficult. Then when our schools reopened to provide that structure of stability for both the, the mental well-being and the academic well-being, we focused primarily on the academic well-being. We did not have additional resources for mental health. We did not have additional counselors. We did not have downtime to just build relationships and interact with each other. It was very focused on the academic world. And that was really difficult for the students. And of course, they're going to lash out. Mm-hmm. Of course, they're going to be in a system or they're going to be in a, in a position where they're still in a fight or flight mode right. in their world. And you're putting them into a position where they almost have to fight. That's what they're doing in some level. Um, and I think that that was a, a huge injustice to what we did when we started bringing students back again. This summer, I spent a lot of time working with educators and with administrators to say, what are we going to do to create that space in our schools so that we can create a welcoming, inclusive environment right. so that our students can be successful? Because it can't be the very first day it's about the lesson. Correct. It well, needs to be about the relationships. We're talking right now with Kim Kohas. She is the president of AFT Wisconsin. We have two callers waiting. I'm so excited. I appreciate them uh, hanging on the line for us for a minute. Pamela, you had a question or a comment about Act 10. Hi, Pamela. Hold on one second. Let's make sure we can hear you. To start over again. Yeah, can you hear me now? Oh, that's perfect. Perfect. What do you think, Pamela? Well, I mean, I think so many things, and I appreciate the conversation. Um, it's really important for the public to hear what's going on in school. So I'm a teacher. Um, I've been a teacher for 30 years. Thank you for uh, teaching. One thing, yeah, thank you. Um, one of the things I want to point out about Act 10 that I don't know that a lot of people know is that Act 10 has limited the number of days that someone, a veteran teacher that is, that is retired can be a substitute teacher. So it used to be that we had wonderful retired teachers that would come in and they kind of made it their full-time job to come in and be a substitute teacher. But because of Act 10, the number of days that they can sub is limited because Scott Walker said that was called double dipping. So what happens is people that would have been substitute teachers after they retired have taken on other positions because their, their amount of days they can work is limited. So that is a huge reason that we don't have enough substitute teachers. Th- that's fascinating. Pamela, thank you so much for, for sharing that. And and I'll say a, a friend of mine that I was talking to that is a former teacher that wanted to be a substitute teacher and I will say was one of the most fabulous teachers uh, in my Madison Public School. She wasn't my kid's teacher and yet she knew all about my kids. That's how amazing she was. Um, and she has told me how she's no longer on the substitute teacher list because there were different rules that sort of kicked her out. And now she has to reapply and she needs a reference and all of these things. And she's like, what the heck? I, w- I was a teacher in your schools for decades. And now you're questioning whether I'm qualified. Kim, your thoughts on Pamela's comment and and the impacts of Act 10? You know, one of the things that happened with Act 10 was mass uh, resignation and retirements. And so we lost an aspect of our schools that has that history and those relationships Mm -hmm. for multiple years with students. One of my favorite things is the first day of school and seeing the students that I had last year that have now graduated to the next grade and they come running to the hallway and they are so excited to see me again. When we have high teacher turnover, we don't have those relationships every single year. The students come into school that year, they don't know who their teacher is. They don't know who their teacher was last year or where she is. And they don't recognize a lot of the teacher faces. And so one of the things that the districts did prior to Act 10 is they actually promoted retired teachers being substitutes in the schools that they used to work in because of those relationships. Absolutely. They valued those relationships. And we don't have that aspect anymore. Um, I find that to be a really negative and detrimental side effect of the high teacher turnover 
because students don't have those adults in the buildings for the five, six years that they're in that school that they can depend on and have those relationships with because there's constantly a new phase of the, the adults that they're working with. Um, so Pamela, I really appreciate you pointing that out. Our substitute teachers are so critically important uh, to providing that emotional stability for our students uh, along with the academic supports. So thank you for being, being out there and doing that. Thanks for your yeah, question, Pamela. Yeah, go ahead. Thank you. I just want to add, too, I mean, when we think about substitute teachers, you might think about that day that, you know, put, you put a thumbtack on somebody's chair or something, but substitute teachers are actually filling in for, it could be months at a time at this point. So we're not just talking about someone that might just be there for a day. Well, and you're also saving resources when there isn't a substitute teacher, then the teacher that's out, out sick or for whatever reason is double questioning whether they should be out sick to take care of them, where they should be going out and personal time, everything that vacations, everything that everyone deserves in their life, because it's going to impact their students. And they're also now putting pressure on their colleagues, you know, to to have to double dip and and do all these extra things when they're just trying to teach their classrooms is is is. So substitutes are so incredibly important, even if it is just for one day. But Correct. Thank you for reminding us, Pamela. Substitutes are a lot more than just a one-day fill-in. Yes, yes. Thank you so much for calling. And Steve, you've been waiting on the line as well. You're a former educator, and you have a comment about uh, disrespect for teachers. Yes, thank you. Yeah, I'm a retired elementary teacher and principal. Thank you for uh, teaching. A a graduate course that I I took, I had to interview my grandmother, who was a a teacher in a one-room school in the the 30s and it it was a graduate course on the history of education in the united states and what was really an eye-opener to me is there's really a long history of disrespect of teachers in our country in in, uh, through the 60s if a woman got married she couldn't continue teaching if she was pregnant she couldn't continue teaching just underpay and disrespect isn't something new and So I just, I wanted to add that to the conversation that, unfortunately, right-wing politicians vilify education, and it's easier for them to do that because it's predominantly a profession of women, and and they're targeting that and going after that. It's it's unfortunate, but I, I think it's a factor that I wanted to bring into the conversation. Steve, I really appreciate you making sure that we remember the level of um, misogyny and sexism that come in with uh, the disrespect of the teaching profession. Obviously, fabulous uh, people that don't identify as female, like yourself and many and many others, are fabulous, fabulous members of the teaching profession, and thank goodness for them, for everyone. But disproportionately, the teaching profession was, right, because the history of our country, it started out as a profession that women, educated women that wanted to have a career could be a part of. So it has this whole huge level of sexism and misogyny in it. Kim, what are your thoughts on the level of sexism that plays into all these conversations? You know, it's interesting because a woman could be a teacher until she wanted to have kids or be married. Um, and even that, it was controlled as to what she did during her personal time. It was controlled as to where she would travel in the community and who she could travel with or be escorted with were some of the rules. Um, and you know, it's, it's really interesting when we take a look at the evolution of it, the only way that we were able to push back on this level of disrespect was to unionize. And that's what you see across the state is the, the, we have a strong professional education union, both with AFT and with NEA, where we demand a high level of respect. We demand a high level of investment and a high level of value of public education. It's so much more than just the individual, um, but we see that across the state and we see that uh, across the nation. But we're seeing that now when we see teacher strikes, like right now we have a strike going on in Columbus, Ohio, their buildings are falling apart. Their roofs are leaking 
And the educators have gone on strike to say, this is not acceptable learning conditions nor working conditions. Mm -hmm. And so it's the unions that have stood together and unified around these issues that have created a more equitable and more respectful workplace when it comes to public education. And a lot of that changed during Act 10. Yes. Um, Now that we don't have a collective bargaining contract, um, there's a lot of things that we're seeing revert back to the way things were at the turn of the century. And I know in my contract, when I was in the classroom, my contract was 28 pages long. And that included everything from working conditions, but it included my prep time. It included my class sizes. It included my collaboration time with my coworkers. And now we don't have those aspects of it. So we're fighting every day with our administration for our professional needs. And that's one of the things that is draining about it is we want to be really good in our classroom, but we need to have a system that has enough integrity to allow us to do that. Um, I never knew women were paid less because everybody in my union was paid the same. And so I had no idea until the last few years that women are still traditionally paid less than a male in that same position. And unions are the great equalizer of that. Thank you, Pamela and Steve, for your great questions. If anyone else wants to join the conversation, we would love to hear you at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can always uh, pass a message on to Rochelle and Nate in the studio if you don't want to join us on air. But, of course, we'd love to hear your voice on air as well. Area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. All right, Kim so many more things to go through. Let's let's talk about funding. And I feel like funding is two conversations, how we pay our teachers, but also how we pay our schools. So let's start on the big picture first. Uh, there's been an intentional effort to defund our public schools. And uh, our administrations are having to do more with less and less money, making impossible decisions of who should I cut, not who deserves and where do I think money belongs, but what can I cut that will hurt the least? Talk to us about the impact of the defunding of public schools. It's done two things. It has created a larger divide of inequality. Um, the inequality was there um, when schools are adequately funded. But we definitely see that your success in a public school or your um, resources, infrastructure, and student-teacher ratio in public schools is dependent on your zip code Mm. because of the funding formula in this state. And that's not sustainable nor equitable. And we're seeing that divide with it. And what happens is, is we've got families who are really frustrated by things that they're seeing in their public schools, such as having leaking ceilings or such as having um, a lack of resources. And so the families are looking for a different option which is where we've got the second system of financial support in the state by the voucher program and the charter school systems. And so now you've got two systems that are competing. One of them in public education is statewide and open to everybody, but then you've got this system where parents are looking for something different. And so we've got a huge inequity in what is happening in our schools. And then you've got legislation with the high stakes testing, with the uh, federal and the state mandates that need to be administered and managed. So districts are actually having more management, more administrators control or taking care of all the federal and state mandates. Mm -hmm. And you have even less educators interacting with students. Interesting. And when it comes to taking a look at how do we meet our budget, where would we make cuts? They can't make the cuts that have been federally and state mandated. They have to have those aspects of it. So they have to cut programming. They have to cut resources. They increase class sizes. They decrease programming. And we even see this divide in our athletic programs. It's not the Mm -hmm. same statewide with what it costs for a child to participate in a sport. It varies based on your district's ability to fund that sport right so even those aspects of things create a huge inequality in our systems and the funding has to be taken a look at 
when we don't invest at an adequate level, it shows that high level of disrespect and devaluing of our system. Well, and I feel like, I mean, this conversation in itself could be a whole hour-long conversation of the impact that it has because when you have parents that are, right, comfortably middle class, disproportionately white, they send their kid to the public school, but they say, God, you know, I'm sending them here, but I really don't like that you don't have art anymore. I really don't like that you don't have this. And they're sort of pushing with their voices to say, oh, as if they're doing a favor by sending their kid to the public school and the schools have no choice but to not repair those things or fund those things or or make smaller class sizes because it's literally impossible for them to do that. And then you get families that can't afford it fleeing to the private schools and it is self-perpetuating. The more you underfund it, the more people leave, the more you're stuck in the cycle, the more parents who say they mean well. And I think they genuinely do mean well but then you get in the system where they're part of the problem too because they're trying to advocate for their child and it's an unending you can't succeed yep it's a huge cycle that and and this is where our teachers are created with it um and so and funding is complex we are a system that is based on the value of your home is going to determine the quality of your public education ridiculous the entire system is set up for inequality. Right, right, right. And so we have to have a deep conversation. And these are bigger experts in the in the content area than I am when it comes to this. How do we fund our but schools? I know, yeah. that, I know that every year when we've got a state budget that comes out, I look at what my pu- per pupil is going to be for my classroom to know whether or not we're going to be able to be sustainable or not. We have... And- that should not be the determining factor. Can we have Terry holding on the line for us? Terry, you wanted to tell us a story about teaching. Go ahead, Terry. Yes, um, just kind of, just kind of amusing. My mother was a high school teacher starting in the early 70s. And um, two, two things about um, her, her teaching uh, was at her first evaluation, the principal had nothing to say whatsoever about her pedagogy or her relationship or whatever. The uh, comment was that her stocking seams were not straight. And the other thing is the entirety of her teaching career, it was required that her hair um, died. And um, her father had never never seen her with, with natural colored hair and was just shocked thought she bleached her hair when she retired and was able to let it go to its natural silver fascinating i mean teachers used to you know their their appearance even was um paramount well i mean thanks for sharing that story with us terry and just sort of to remind us the controlling and uniformity that you know a level of misogyny of controlling over women, but also a level of, you know, infantizing the teaching profession, infantizing the youth. They are they are youth, but they do not need to be uh, infantized by the government telling them, you know, what they can and can't be. Um, just really fascinating. Uh, thanks for sharing that, Terry. Now, Kim, I wanted to talk to you about, you know, we've talked about all of these things. We can talk even more. We haven't even gotten to teacher salary we haven't even gotten to school violence and school safety and school shootings but before we get to that if we don't have enough time a question i wanted to make sure i asked you was do you think this is intentional the the rhetoric the underfunding is there a level of uh intent to see our public schools fail yes Mm mm-hmm and I'm not sure how much to elaborate because it's mean, a yes. I think it's an obvious question, but I, yes. I I wasn't sure what you were going to say. So yes. So what do we? So then, with the answer being yes, uh, and I thought it was obvious, and to hear from you so easily that the answer is yes without hesitation. What do we do? How do then we? On some level, it's good because we know what the problem is. That there's an intentional effort to do all these things. But they spread it on so many levels, defunding, uh, attacking the level of respect, attacking the the dignity of teachers, uh, changing the curriculum and requiring you to teach for the test, refusing to acknowledge and fund mental health support for families. I mean, everything that happens outside in the world, housing discrimination, race discrimination, 
uh, tension, uh, the the lack of people to get their basic uh, needs filled, the lack of people's ability to afford food and hunger and homelessness and poverty, that all lands literally in the classroom seats in front of a teacher. how do, what do you want our listeners to know? How can they solve and be part of the solution? I really think it comes down to having a conversation about what we value, what we want for quality instruction, and then making the decision to invest in that. But that's not going to come from sitting down having conversations. That's going to come from some of the debates that we're seeing right now across the nation. We've seen it with teacher strikes in West Virginia, Colorado, and Arizona. Teachers are saying there is a problem. It needs to be addressed for a healthy solution. Right now, the solutions that we have is to continue to cut, to modify, and to lower the, the quality. Teachers and teachers unions are saying that is not acceptable. But the reality is, is we have parents who want the same things as teachers do but we're screaming about two different things. But the reality is is we want the same things for our kids. We want every child to go to a a safe quality school. They wanna feel welcomed and they wanna have the resources needed to be successful. Let's start with that conversation. That's what we want. How do we move from there? So making sure that we are working towards the goals. The kids are our focus. And when we lose focus of that and we start nitpicking and pitting each other apart, that's where we're ending up with this destructive system that's in place. So I think it's really important for us to have conversations in our community, build those relationships because with the folks that share the same values of what we want to see for our kids, and then quite honestly, fight like hell for it. We fight like hell for it in our communities at the voting box um, and with our legislators, we need to start building a system that invests in public education so that our students and our future citizens and voters are healthy and strong and well-informed. And that's what we're, we're fighting so hard for. Kim, are you seeing any hope? I mean, sometimes the, the benefit of, of hitting a, a low is the, um, the galvanization of people. Yes. Um, we're definitely seeing that in the pro-choice pro, pro choice and uh, anti-abortion and pro, uh, pro-abortion communities of the impact of Roe, feeling like that's such a low. Do you feel like that's a conversation that's happening now where people are starting to galvanize and be more vocal about the needs of public schools, which we've discussed has been there for, for decades, but perhaps is finally coming to a head? Well, and I think that's what it was. I think there was lots of little conversations, lots of opportunity to say, I don't want to hear about that. I don't want to talk about that. Lots of uncomfortable moments that weren't big enough to want to change. But now we are at a huge pivotal point where everybody is seeing this is massive. And what are we going to do about it? We can continue to dismantle it, or we can actually choose to build it. And that's what we're seeing right now. And we're seeing that all over the place. Columbus, they're on strike with community and parents. It's not just the teachers that are out there walking that picket line. It is parents and community members. There are communities in the state of Wisconsin, even this week and last week, we have school board meetings where we are standing in line with parents and community members, city councilmen, mayors, community partners saying, this is what is needed for our schools. We stand unified on a lot of these issues. We need to make sure that we're diligent about the work that we do to continue to highlight, this is what we're fighting for. We need to stop fighting against. Well, I love hearing that I was um, on the county board for 16 years here in Dane County. And I remember People always say, what are the biggest issues and what's going on? And I would say education, even though that's something I don't have any control over as an elected official on the county level. I do have control just as an elected official in general. And when I talk to people, they don't care that 
The county government has nothing to do with public schools. If I ask them what's the biggest issue, they talk to me about my, I'm, my concern for the public schools. So that's so important to hear, you know, everybody on every level sort of uniting towards that. Kim, do you think there's any one particular place where it would be the best first step? Could it be a conversation about raising teacher salaries and ex- ensuring that they get paid for the time that they do um, and all the work that they do and, and salaries that are you know above? I hate it when we even say they should get a living wage. Heck yeah, they should get a living wage. Heck yeah, they should get more than a living wage. This is one of the most important professions in our society. Can you start there or is it really everywhere it needs work? Well, I think when we talk about a budget, it reflects our values. So if you're not going to pay educators well, and it should be above a living wage because they are well-educated and experts in their profession, if you're not going to pay them well, you don't value them. They're not a huge component of the budget then. And so I do think that that is a part of the conversation, but it really is what is needed for the outcome of all students being successful and being welcomed in our schools. What's needed? It's a combination of things. Pay and salary is there. Training and professional development is there. Resources are there. Buildings are there. But if we don't start having the conversation about what do we want for all kids, that's where we're going to start being distracted by the noise that's out there. We need to focus our conversation on what do we want for all kids. Well, it has been fabulous talking with you, Kim. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for your leadership and your voice. There are so many people, pieces. I mean, again, we didn't even talk about school safety and school violence, but there's just so many challenges facing our students, and it's so important that we let them know that it's more than just a pat on the back, although our teachers deserve a pat on the back, but they need we need so much more. Um, it, this has been a really important conversation. Thank you so much, Kim. Thank you for the space and highlighting what's happening in our schools. Um, we, we need to have these conversations about the realities so that we can address them and look for solutions. It's been fabulous talking with you. Kim Kohas, uh, AFT Wisconsin president. Again, thank you so much for joining us. And a huge thank you to Rochelle for producing today's show, Nate for engineering, Mary Jo for uh, answering the phones. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We will see you again next week. Reminder, you are listening to volunteer-powered, listener-sponsored community radio, WORT 89.9 FM Madison. Treason, we broadcast in sedition Like the Wall Street morning afternoon edition Commandeering airwaves from unknown positions Live and direct becoming never pre-recorded With information that would never be reported Disregard the mainstream, media distorted We come and listen and supported Live and direct becoming never pre-recorded With information that would never be reported Disregard the mainstream, media distorted We come and listen and supported Ha <laughs>